When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Paul Doak II. Paul Doak, as Lord Doak, was one of Frederick V's best friends. But, at a time of crisis, he was also one of Frederick's most important helpers because he helped Frederick and his family escape in a rush while Prague was being surrounded by Habsburg forces. Frederick would like to thank you personally, Paul Doak, but of course, none of this is true. I just made it all up. If you'd like me to make something up about you, then make sure you head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Thanks, guys. Now on to the episode. You're listening to the Thirty Years' War, episode 21. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the latest episode of the Thirty Years' War. I'm your host, I'm Zach Twomley, and I'm very happy to have you with me today. How are we all doing? Are we keeping our heads up? Are we keeping our chins up? I personally am finding it very hard to work on anything at all, considering how bad things are going. With COVID in Ireland at the moment, we're heading into a serious second wave, and it looks like we're going to be locked down properly again. And generally, with the wider world, things are just not going very well. Armenia and Azerbaijan fighting a war in the 21st century? Who would have seen that coming? Russia intervening to be a mediator? Who in their right mind would have seen that coming? Nobody, I would say. But you're not here to listen to current affairs, you're here to escape from them. And I'm going to help you do that by transporting you back in time, about 400 years or so, to when everything was, trust me, far worse than it is today. As the title of this episode implies, yes, we stole it straight from Game of Thrones, but winter was indeed coming for the so-called Winter King, Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. He was, Frederick that is, Frederick was established firmly, or so he thought, in his position, and he felt ready enough at the end of 1619 to meet any challenges that the Emperor Ferdinand might throw at him. As we saw in the last episode, though, a great deal changed in the space of only a few months. Frederick went from being a renowned elector, facing down the pathetically weak, besieged and apparently doomed Habsburgs in the Empire, to being besieged himself, as the Emperor engaged in some back-channel, totally unconstitutional diplomacy in order to bring Maximilian of Bavaria on side with the Catholic League and its 25,000-man army. Now, with the distant Wittelsbach cousin leading Emperor Ferdinand's cause, the issue quickly became personal for Frederick. 
he felt the bitterness all the more because one by one, his own allies began to abandon him in turn. In this episode, we'll continue our analysis of Frederick's situation by examining how the Elector Palatine carried on and attempted to establish himself in Bohemia, in spite of the storm going on outside his borders. Although he was, according to the will of the people, the King of Bohemia, the crown quickly proved to be a poisoned chalice, as so many of his advisers and neighbours, in fairness to them, warned that it would. They had also warned that Ferdinand would stop at nothing to restore his lands and titles, and would stop at nothing to ruin Frederick in the process. For a variety of reasons, Frederick had not listened, and he also seems not to have imagined exactly what Ferdinand was capable of. Though Frederick came to the Bohemian throne as a supremely well-connected Protestant prince, it was his Habsburg rival who leveraged his connections to a startling degree. Without any further ado, let's get into the story of the Winter King, as I take you to late 1619. It is all too easy looking back to view Frederick's tenure as King of Bohemia as one of inevitable and impending doom. This, indeed, is the narrative presented to us by C.V. Wedgwood, who wasted no opportunity to comment bitingly on Frederick, a man who, according to her, was no leader. Indeed, he was of so blank a personality as to defy all attempts to make him one. Not only was their new bohemian king worse than useless, his advisers and accomplices acted with the utmost ignorance and stupidity, apparently unaware of bohemia's complexities and cultural taboos. Seldom can such innocent and well-intentioned rulers have made themselves more readily disliked, Wedgwood opined, and she continued by saying, In bohemia, Frederick scandalised his courtiers and advisers by receiving them always bareheaded, but turning to Anhalt for the answer to every question, by allowing his hand to be kissed far too often, by giving precedence to the Queen in public, and letting her appear in dresses which no respectable bohemian husband would have permitted to his wife. Frederick's ignorance apparently knew no limits. He suggested serfdom should be abolished, thus alienating the lords. He made noise about improving Prague's morality, thus alienating the common people and he tore down several iconographic displays, thus alienating the spiritual folk. Into mistake after mistake, the new king appeared to blunder, displaying even less of his usual intelligence, with no rhyme or reason as to his policy, before making a tone-deaf request that the Bohemians should approve of his son's succession by hereditary right. Was there any truth to these accusations, or to this image given to us by Wedgwood, Could Frederick do anything right? In actual fact, Frederick was nowhere near as dumb or pathetic in his governance of this new kingdom. In one of his first acts as king, he paid a visit to a small community of Anabaptists in the Moravian town of Brun. Anabaptists were an isolated and mostly loathed sect of Christianity in the early 17th century, but Frederick's visit to their community, his tolerant observation of their customs, and his warm interactions with their leaders spoke volumes about the kind of king he intended to be. In return, the Anabaptists presented the new king and queen with gifts of fur gloves, an iron bedstead, and some richly decorated knives, but no armies, of course. In a letter Frederick wrote to his wife, he commented not a bit on their beliefs or religious practices, 
but instead upon the welcome he had received, and he added that if these Anabaptists ever visited Prague, he would visit them quite often. Frederick had no reason to lie in this letter to his wife. He could have ridiculed the Anabaptists or declared his intention to remove their sect from the country, as Ferdinand had long sought to do, by the way. But instead, Frederick ignored their religious differences and focused on the matter at hand, crafting his regime. It would be wrong to assume that Frederick's cause was doomed from the start. At the time of accepting the Bohemian crown, it certainly appeared possible, not only that Ferdinand could be forced to compromise, but also that, following this capitulation, other powers would rush to aid Frederick. It was much easier to defend a country like Bohemia than it was to have to seize it, especially when Frederick remained under the impression that Ferdinand had barely enough men to defend Vienna, let alone launch an expeditionary force into Bohemia. The citizens of Prague would certainly be expected to defend heartily against any semblance of a Habsburg takeover. They would have known, of course, that Ferdinand would offer them no mercies if he retook his crown and the capital with it. This was not to say that in late 1619, Frederick's cause appeared desperate either. Instead, it would be more accurate to judge the new regime as stable, relatively secure and defensible, but, and this is a critical but, dependent upon a few factors, which in the end turned out to be far less reliable than Frederick had hoped. The first of these important factors was the assumption that the Bohemian estates, having elected Frederick as their king, would now help and support him in his quest to defend the crown from its enemies. The second assumption, the second key factor, was that his allies meant what they said, and that they would move to aid him once they possessed what he needed. Further assumptions tie in with these. Elizabeth, as the daughter of King James of Britain, assumed that her father would never allow the Habsburgs to overrun the Palatinate, even if King James was not too much bothered about the fate of Bohemia. To permit Frederick's ancestral lands to come under attack would surely have brought dishonour upon the British king for failing to defend his son-in-law or that family's interests. Subsequent pleas, verging on desperate and incredulous, from the court of the Winter King and Queen, testified to the sad fact that King James I and VI was wholly committed to his policy of mediation, and more broadly, he was committed to positioning England as the moderating force of a continent brimming with dynastic and religious quarrels. As we'll see in later episodes, one of the primary means by which James believed such ends could be achieved was through a Spanish marriage, where the future King Charles I, still having his head at this point, would marry a daughter of King Philip III of Spain. This search for the Spanish match has come under justified criticism, as it hampered King James's ability to look outside the very narrow box which he had placed as foreign policy. Notwithstanding its shortcomings, though, King James had bought into it, and he refused to be moved away from this Spanish match policy, and so the daughter and son-in-law were sacrificed in favour of the promises granted to the son and heir. We'll have more time to talk about this Spanish match in the future, so push it to somewhere in the back of your mind just for the moment. Europe's Protestants were not as animated as Frederick may have hoped, likely because Bohemia was viewed as a somewhat separate entity of the empire, and because it had revolted several times before against Habsburg authority three times in a decade, don't forget. To some of his Protestant peers, Frederick may have seemed like an opportunistic, foolishly daring potentate who sought to take advantage of what was only the latest 
though certainly the most severe, Bohemian Revolt. By so acting, his recklessness endangered his religious peers, and it threatened to aggravate what was the tacitly accepted, if contradictory, peace of 1555. As difficult as Frederick's efforts to mobilise Protestant support had been up to this point, they became progressively more so once Ferdinand capitalised upon the caution and concerns of the majority of the empire's Protestant princes and turned them against the Palatine cause. Indeed, in time, Ferdinand so outflanked Frederick's Protestant banner that the Palatine-Bohemian cause was forced to face down a mostly combined Catholic-Protestant-Confessional alliance bound together by its determination to remove any dangers to the peace, as well as, it must be said, promises and appeals which Ferdinand had made to its members' self-interest. Further problems were discovered when Frederick tried to find some kind of Dutch contribution to his efforts. In the past, the Dutch had provided considerable sums of money and a not insignificant detachment of soldiers. By late 1619, though, the Dutch Republic was working through the inner struggles of its complex societal and religious issues, which resulted, within a few years, in the triumph of the House of Orange, but which, in 1619, were still raw and very unsolved. There was also the concern in the Netherlands that as the deadline for the expiration of the 12 years' truce approached, that deadline being April 1621, so about 18 months away, the Spanish would be bound to become more belligerent and they could be expected to seize strategically important crossings or towns in anticipation of the resumption of the war. To meet these challenges, it was imperative that the Dutch were not distracted, but also that they possessed some measure of military force which could be quickly applied in response. Believe me that the Bohemian War will decide the fates of all of us, but especially yours, since you are the neighbours of the Czechs, remarked a Dutch agent in a letter to an envoy of the Evangelical Union in the summer of 1619. And he continued, For the present, we shall seek out all ways of bringing you help, though we have many difficulties to face. These difficulties had much to do with the religious turmoil then underway in the Netherlands, where a Calvinist synod had been established to declare on questions of doctrine, and the letter from this Dutch agent kept going. The synod has indeed decreed the aid which reflects the general feelings of our Reformed Church, but some of our clergy are resisting with great obstinacy, and we have been forced to banish them and to punish their rebellion when they do not obey their authorities. All this is harmful to the Bohemian cause, which we would wish to further at all times. For their part, the Lutheran noblemen, even of Bohemia itself, were greatly disturbed by the pace of events. One particularly gloomy individual felt that his countrymen had betrayed their best qualities by behaving in such a desperate and provocative manner, and he believed that the display would only hasten the end of the freedoms which they had enjoyed and which they were now fighting for. This gloomy bohemian noted, We have broken our oath and thrown respectable men, who came in the name of the king, out of the window. We did not give them time to pray, let alone defend themselves. We did not even want to listen to Emperor Matthias or King Ferdinand, who still offered us peace, forgiveness, our rights and privileges, as well as judicial resolution. We allied with the neighbouring lands, in and outside the empire, the Hungarians, the English, the Dutch, the Turks, the devil himself. We besieged Vienna and opened the entire German Empire to the Turks and Tartars as far as it was in our power. Whether we win or lose, 
our fate will be heavy. Those that have helped Frederick will stand in a long queue, hungry for land and money at our expense, if we win. The anger of the much maligned emperor will be upon us if we are defeated. What else can we expect? We have taken from the emperor that which belongs to him and to God and offered it to the Turks. Had Frederick been aware of this letter, he probably would have dismissed it as Habsburg propaganda and he would have argued that he had had no choice other than tireless resistance either way. With this end in mind, he sought to impress upon the Kingdom of Bohemia precisely how dependent upon his subjects he was, and how he relied upon his people in Bohemia, Moravia, Silesia and Lusatia, the four provinces that made up the Kingdom of Bohemia, to fulfil the many pledges they had made in the past, and just basically give him what was needed for his and their security. In line with this aim, Frederick tried first to merge the Bohemian cause with that of the Evangelical Union. The previous extract from a Lutheran Bohemian nobleman should give us a clue as to how well this appeal went, but Frederick was determined to try anyway. And so in late November 1619 at Nuremberg, Frederick tried to commit the Union and as many Protestant potentates as would join him as possible to the Bohemian cause, and in a fit of optimism, he had even invited the King of Denmark to join the discussion. If the attendance disappointed Frederick, then the pessimistic reception from much of the Union's members was a crippling blow. The meeting seems to have marked the end of illusion for Frederick, as his former allies of the Union launched several justified attacks against him. Frederick had neglected to consult them when he had taken Union troops with him from Amberg in the Upper Palatinate on his way to Bohemia. He had also diverted English subsidies meant for the Union into his new kingdom's treasury in Prague, and by these actions he had left the Union terminally unprepared for any war that might occur. The Union now found that its very solidarity was undermined, as Frederick's actions had caused its members to splinter into more or less radical segments. To take the wind out of Frederick's sails even further, the representatives insisted that the Elector Palatine was no longer in a position to defend the Union's interests, and thus he had to give up his position as commander in Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Chief of the Evangelical Union, along with just as an extra kicker, the monthly salary of 6,000 florins which went along with this position. The best that the union's members would do for Frederick was to issue a guarantee to the Winter King that they would defend his palatinate in the event of an attack from foreign powers. The cherry on top of this bitter cake for Frederick then arrived, an envoy from the Emperor who carried a message from Ferdinand which urged those assembled to disperse at this meeting of the Evangelical Union, and which also promised to respect the religious privileges of the Bohemians, since nothing was more important to Ferdinand than the urgent restoration of peace. Notwithstanding Ferdinand's scheming and dishonest behaviour in the past, or the fact that he had already made a deal with the Duke of Bavaria to partition the Elector Palatine's lands and transfer his electoral title, Ferdinand's entreaties only served to undermine and divide the Evangelical Union even further, as the Emperor surely expected they would. In contrast to the once divided Catholic League, it was now the Evangelical Union that was beleaguered, undersupported, and demoralised, while the resurgent Catholic League possessed a unity of purpose, a respected leader in Maximilian of Bavaria who could expect to be obeyed, and more importantly, a personal assurance from the Emperor himself that the Catholic League was now the Habsburg's instrument within the Empire. Just as they did not know exactly what their empire had already done to them, the members of the Evangelical Union also could not have known exactly how outgunned they already were, and the imbalance was set only to increase. With its Protestant support evaporating, over the period of December 1619 to March 1620, Frederick travelled through Bohemia on his royal progress. If the Evangelical Union was not to be moved, then perhaps Frederick could base his solidarity and his strength upon the loyalty and adoration of the Bohemian people. In any case, these travels were an expected part of the king's duties. The Bohemian kingdom's federal nature meant that Moravia, Silesia and Lusatia all contained independent estates, customs and languages, which Frederick would have to traverse if he wanted to win the loyalty of these subjects. In the recent history of the Bohemian Revolt, the Bohemian rebels had discovered how difficult rallying the composite parts of the monarchy together under one banner had been. Until they applied the necessary pressure, the other provinces had seemed perfectly willing to throw their lot in with the Habsburgs. The Confederation of late July 1619 had simplified these matters and basically forced the constituent parts of Bohemia to cooperate as one, but Frederick was still required to venture to each of these provinces in turn, as though each province was its own realm. It is easy, in a sense, to view what followed as a kind of sham, as Frederick's attempts to bribe his new subjects into siding with him against Emperor Ferdinand are laid bare. As Brennan Purcell quite reasonably pointed out, though, if Frederick had not travelled in style and with expense, then this would have cast doubt on the regime's longevity, and even fewer people would have sided with him. Frederick had to see his subjects, and he had to be seen, so that they could put a face to the name which they had undoubtedly heard so much of. By ingratiating himself towards his subjects, 
Frederick was not engaging in dishonest behaviour. He genuinely seemed to care for these people and their freedoms, and he genuinely seemed to fear for their futures if Emperor Ferdinand was victorious and implemented the victor's peace in Bohemia. After some marching, by early February 1620, Frederick was brought to Brun in Moravia. Frederick confirmed the Moravian freedoms and asked in return for the traditional gift which was normally given to the new king, as was a redoubling of recruitment, to call up every 20th man. The Moravian estates did give Frederick 50,000 Moravian gulden, but they would only be persuaded to recruit 1,500 militia for their country's defence, and even then only for six months. This was dispiriting for Frederick, but this turned to fear when it was learned that not too far from the Moravian border, 8,000 Cossacks had poured into Upper Silesia, only a few miles from where he was staying. Moving on the King of Poland's orders, with the express purpose of hampering Frederick's actions and aiding his brother-in-law, King Sigismund III of Poland showed himself once again willing to come to the Emperor's aid, and he may have done more had the same back in Poland not restricted his freedom of action. Frederick watched the villages of Moravia burn not too far from his residence, as the Cossacks destroyed the areas they moved through with an unflinching sense of mission. By the 13th of February 1620, Frederick was making his way towards the north of Moravia, and by the 23rd of February, his progress took him into Breslau in Silesia. While in Breslau, Frederick met with his new subjects, heard their grievances, confirmed their privileges, interestingly refused their request to expel their Jews, and he received their homage. He then left the estates in Breslau to select their own government officials. Frederick also tried to mediate between the disconcerted Catholics who lived in Breslau and who had been forced to give an oath of allegiance by the majority Protestant population. Frederick assured these Catholics that he had no interest in eradicating their religious creed and that he wanted merely to ensure his regime wouldn't be abandoned by those few Catholics who engaged in underhanded politics and plotting. Frederick also made significant efforts to paper over the cracks between Lutherans and Calvinists, a cause dear to him considering his Anglican wife and Calvinist upbringing. True to his character, Frederick proved a tolerant and warm host, and he refrained from forcing any Calvinist teachings upon the subjects he came across. It is true that he offered the Calvinists of Breslau space in the great hall of his royal castle for their church services, but this was because these Calvinist citizens had no place of their own for worship. Still, Frederick could not heal the religious divide, and as late as April 1620, these Calvinist services were still being disrupted by angry Lutheran residents in the city. By that time, Frederick had already been forced to cut short his progress, cancelling a trip to Lusatia, where a meeting with John George of Saxony, a fellow Protestant elector, had been hoped for. By the 14th of March 1620, Frederick was back in Prague, ready and willing to direct the war effort against what turned out to be a swirling morass of enemies. Ferdinand's camp had grown massively even since Frederick had left on his progress at the end of 1619, and if he was not yet aware, then it soon became clear that the scales had tipped determinedly against the Elector Palatine. We're going to continue the episode in a bit, history friends, but before we do, I want to mention two things very briefly to you. This will only take a second. First of all, if you're looking for more podcast content and you were a bit interested by my mention of the Polish king just there, 
then you should definitely check out Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which is a series we're doing in the Patreon feed and can be yours to listen to for $5 a month. You can also pay all at once in a year if you'd rather do that, but either way, you'll be getting access to a podcast series which is running concurrently to the Thirty Years' War every other week, in fact. So if you're kind of filling up on the Thirty Years' War, or you miss when these things used to be every week, then make sure to sign up on Patreon for that, and you'll be able to learn all about Poland's experience of the 18th century. At the moment, we've just reached the point in our story when Tsar Peter has been confirmed as Peter the Great, after having beaten his Swedish enemy, and basically made Russia a massive superpower in the region. This came at the expense of Poland, as we are learning, but the story of Poland, and its complex institutions, and its crazy kings, is by no means over, so make sure you head on over there. We've still got 80 years of the story left to tell, and those 80 years are seriously juicy, if I do say so myself. The second thing I want to talk about is something I announced relatively recently, and it is the fact that we're basically migrating our merchandise to somewhere where it's actually more reliable and dependable than poor old me. We joined up with TeePublic recently, and I've really been enjoying the experience of TeePublic. I have to say that its merchandise, its ease of access, its interface and everything is all so good and intuitive, and as someone who loves crunching statistics and everything else, TeePublic really give you a good chance to do that. Once again, the story is the same. Click on the link in the description below and you'll be taken to When Diplomacy Fails podcast store in TeePublic, where you can sample one of our many wares. You can get our logo basically emblazoned on anything. I'm eyeing up a new phone or laptop case myself, but you can get a t-shirt, a hoodie, a jumper, etc, etc. And there's also two different Bismarck designs as well. They are the I have beaten them all one with Bismarck looking angrily into the distance and also make history with Bismarck looking menacingly directly at you. So if either of those sound good, head on over to that tea public store or you know the deal. Click on the link in the description below. These different avenues of support, whether it's Patreon or tea public, help inject little bits of money into this show and keep it tugging along while we are also doing a PhD and trying not to freak the hell out about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, to borrow one of Mike Duncan's phrases. I've really appreciated so much all of the support you guys have given me, and I can't wait to see what this podcast can do in the future with your support. But for now, let's get back to Frederick. Frederick's royal progress over late 1619 to early 1620 can seem like the final desperate act of a fleeting regime, but it should be said that most of Frederick's subjects were happy to see their new Protestant king, and they told him so. Frederick received plenty of gifts, had important conversations with eager nobles, spent time in many manor houses, admired the countryside, and certainly partook in the bountiful hunting which was on offer. Frederick also learned how difficult it was to be separated from his wife for nearly four months. He even had to urge her not to get too down and depressed during his absence. Writing from Brune in Moravia in early February, Frederick has said to Elizabeth, I beg you not to let go of yourself, because you do yourself harm and offend God to grieve without reason. In the end, one must resolve to want what God wants, and each must follow what he is called to do. Frederick returned to Prague in mid-March and enjoyed a joyous reunion with his wife, 
and on the last day of March 1620, the couple celebrated the baptism of their fourth child and third son, Ruprecht. It was of no small coincidence that the last Holy Roman Emperor of Palatine, Wittelsbach stock, had also been called Ruprecht. This did not necessarily mean that Frederick intended to place his son on the imperial throne, but it did indicate that he planned for a changing of the guard at the top, and that the Palatine family had more than enough historical and dynastic clout to make this change happen. As it happened, rather than usurping the Habsburgs' glory in any sense, Prince Ruprecht would become known to posterity as Prince Rupert of the Rhine, a renowned commander and admiral in English royal service during the Civil War, and thereafter during the Restoration Era. To secure the bright future for his family and Bohemia, which he so desired, in April 1620, Frederick managed to secure approval from the Bohemia Estates to make his son, Frederick Henry, his successor to the Bohemian throne. The Bohemian Kingdom, with this act, moved from the Habsburg to the Wittelsbach dynasty. But by this point, Frederick had already been bombarded with bad news, in addition to exhortations from the Empire's princes to abdicate the Bohemian throne and beg Ferdinand's mercy and forgiveness. Much like the Bohemians, though, by April 1620, Frederick could not go back. He had promised all the Bohemians their privileges, and he couldn't abandon these oaths now, nor could he leave this kingdom after securing its crown for his son and heir, potentially for good. This advantageous position that he had gained for himself was worth fighting for, Frederick believed, and for the last few months he had not been forced to fight for it all that much. The Habsburgs, indeed, hadn't launched any serious attacks on Frederick at this point. Instead, they'd built up their strength, just as Frederick's strength was sapped and reduced by horrified allies and jealous subjects. Contrary to his epithet, Frederick was still the king of Bohemia, even though winter had ended. While the season had come to an end, though, a different kind of winter, a political winter, a reckoning, was still forthcoming. In March 1620, a sweeping representation of the empire's Catholic and Protestant princes had met with Emperor Ferdinand in the city of Mulhausen. While there, the electors Mainz, Cologne, Trier, Saxony and Ferdinand, who had ignored the rebels' actions and was still proclaimed King of Bohemia and therefore was still an elector, were joined by the Duke of Bavaria and other minor princes, and Brandenburg sent a representative too. It was at Mulhausen that one of the most important steps was taken towards an escalation of the conflict that became the Thirty Years' War. This meeting decided, if Frederick would not relinquish the Bohemian crown by the 1st of June 1620, then Emperor Ferdinand resolved to issue the imperial ban against him, meaning that the Elector Palatine's lands and those of his allies would be forfeit. Of course, Ferdinand did not expect Frederick to comply, nor did he really want him to comply. If he had, this would seriously have complicated the pledges which Ferdinand made in secret to Maximilian of Bavaria. You know, Maximilian, the man charged with engineering the downfall of his Vittles' back cousin in the name of the greater good of the empire and, conveniently, his own dynasty's position. The fix was in, and in spite of these public warnings, Ferdinand was inherently incapable of making peace with the Elector Palatine, thanks to agreements and pledges he had already made behind closed doors. Frederick could decry the unconstitutionality of Ferdinand's behaviour and note that an electoral college was required to pass the imperial ban. 
Ferdinand was not empowered simply to request support for the venture from his princely pets and creditors. Proper judicial processes and traditional protocols were required. Yet, as Frederick was beginning to learn by now, imperial law mattered less than the actors who actually had the power to interpret it. The omens were already grave that Frederick's downfall had been planned for. On top of everything else, the Spanish had raised an army of more than 20,000 men and had it poised, it was said, to overrun the lower Palatinate along the Rhine. While the Spanish moved, Maximilian of Bavaria, the Catholic League, and even the Elector of Saxony were rumoured to have settled their accounts with the Emperor. With his allies silent and absent, and his enemies numerous and circling, the summer of 1620 looked to be a long one for the Winter King. Frederick attempted to gather the pieces on the board which were under his control, and to reign as Bohemia's king as best as he could, however long this reign was destined to last. In the next episode, we'll examine the culmination of these ill omens, as the once apparently favourable situation disintegrates before Frederick's very eyes. And the threads of Habsburg power are sewn together for the purpose of his destruction. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends and patrons. But until then, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 21 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much to all of you for listening and supporting this show. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 